Every Sunday morning is a wonderful time for God's people to meet for corporate worship, fellowship, and all of that kind of stuff. But some Sundays are really special because they include the baptizing of new believers. And this morning we had the privilege of uh, having four of our youth group members come before us and make a public profession of their new faith in Jesus Christ. And that is really, really neat. I am sorry, uh, and it's not uh, that some of the stuff might be a little obscured because of the um, VBS stuff. If you can't see them when we baptize, feel free to back up a couple of rows if you need to, to see what's going on. And uh, as we do the baptism later tonight, uh, it is a blessing to see God drawing youth to himself. And what a privilege it is to have young believers in our church to disciple and mature uh, into men and women of God as they grow in their lives. And before these young men and women are baptized, I'd like to uh, consider, all of us to consider, what brought them to this very important place in their lives. What did they come to realize in their lives that caused them to want to let the world know they have given their lives to Jesus Christ? Uh, much of what I'm going to say uh, this morning is a review for them. Okay, it's a review. We've already gone up. We've had a number of meetings. Michael and Christina have, have taught them well. And so some of this, actually a lot of it's going to be reviewed for you all. And there'll be a test for you guys later before you're baptized. You have to answer like three questions up here. Not really. But uh, they had to come to the realization of uh, some things about who they, God is, where they, uh, who they are. And that's what we're going to cover this morning. And the first thing that they realized, because it really doesn't, it, it really makes a difference, is that there is a sovereign God. There is a sovereign God. This is the starting place for anyone who has been saved by faith in Christ Jesus. If there is no realization that there is a sovereign God, then there is no reason on earth to be saved. If God is, does not have authority, if God is not sovereign over everything on earth, okay, if God does not have the authority and the say in all things on earth, then there's no reason for us to worry about salvation because he's just like us. Once God has opened the eyes to the truth that he really exists, and it is a God thing when somebody finally begins to understand that there really is a God, then they come to a realization, and our youth have come to a realization, that they need to know who this God is. Because if you realize that there is a sovereign God, the first question is, who? Who is this God? What is this God? How do I know what to do and how to relate to him? And so uh, the next thing that we, who is this God? Well, we've already said it. He is sovereign. He is the sovereign creator. And that's what we see in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Very first page of the Bible. Very first verses in the Bible. This is laid out. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Since he is the creator, which he states right there, what authority and rights does he have to determine how the world works if we create something if we build a house if we build a table do we not have the authority and the right to do whatever we want with what we build if we want to build it and burn it okay who does it belong to me who built it who created it me if i want to build it and sell it do i have the ability to do that absolutely if i want to build it and keep it and put it in my house if my wife lets me after I build something, okay, who has the right to, to determine that? Me, not my wife. 
she, she didn't agree with that at all. All right, and so uh, he gets to, he has all authority and right to determine how his creation will work. He gets to define how life should be lived. He gets to determine how his creation is to relate to him. He gets to set the standards of morality. He has the authority and power to build up or tear down, give life and take it away. He has a right to bring glory to himself in all that he does because he is the sovereign creator. He said, let there be light, and there was light. He said, uh, let there be uh, the world and the universe, and there was. He has the right to do whatever he wants with it, and he has the authority and the power to make sure that that happens. Because of his love for us, he has revealed who he is in his world so that we can know him and relate to him. And, this, and there is much that he has revealed about himself in the Bible, and we could spend a, a long, long time, actually we have spent, the 13 years I'm here, uh, learning more and more about who God is through His Word. But this morning, I want to focus on two characteristics of who God is that are very, very clear in the Bible that directly relate to salvation and baptism and all of that stuff. First, God is holy. Okay, God is holy. We see that in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3. The one uh, and one called, this is an angel, uh, one angel called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. When you see in the Bible three words put together, holy, 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 what's the point? He's really holy. There is nobody else that is holier than God. He is separate. He is not like us. He is not a superhuman. He is not an avenger. He is God, and He is over and above everything that He created. He is outside of time, even though He created time. He is holy. Henry Thiessen defines God's holiness like this. God is holy means that he is absolutely separated from and exalted above all his creatures and creation. And he is entirely separate from all moral evil and sin. Because he is holy and cannot stand moral evil and sin, he is also just. He is also just. We see that in Psalm eleven seven. For the Lord is righteous. That righteous means what? He's just. He loves the righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. And then we also see in Colossians chapter 3, verse 25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality because God is what? Just. He is just. And it's very important to understand that justice is part of who God is. When we say God is just, it doesn't mean that he just works in justice. It doesn't mean that he just declares what's just, but he is just. In his very character, he is. That uh, word is, all right, is a state of being verb for all of you grammarians out there. All right, it's a state of being. He is just means he as a being, he as a person is just. And he cannot be unjust in any way or he ceases to be what? God, because God is just. He cannot do anything that is unjust because it's Justice is part of who he is. And we need to understand that and grasp that. What we're going to look at next is that God is love. But he cannot lay aside his justice because he's love. He must act out his character of justice. He can't help it. I'm a man, right? For those of you who know me, please help me out here. 
All right, I'm a man. Okay, what determines that I'm a man? My DNA. Can that ever be changed? In today's world, I can have uh, changed my outward appearance. I can uh, claim that uh, I am something that I'm not, all that kind of stuff. But if you take my DNA, I'm a man through and through. There's nothing that can change ever. It cannot change. That is what God is in justice. It cannot change as part of his DNA. And we need to understand that. As much as I am male or some of you are female, um, we, he is just. God is also love. God is also love. In 1 John chapter 4, uh, verse 16, so we have come to know and to believe that God, that love, believe the love that God has for us because what? What's it say? God is love. What is there? See that nice is state of being verb? Okay, so he is just as part of his DNA. He is also what? Love is part of his DNA. God being love works in the same way that God being just works. It is who he is. It is part of his innate character. He cannot do anything unloving or he ceases to be God. Anytime you attribute something as being unloving from God, you run into a problem because you are saying that God is not God because God is love. He cannot do anything. He's incapable of doing anything unloving. And sometimes in life, that's really hard for us to determine, isn't it? Or to, to, to grasp. It's really difficult, but we have to start with what the Bible says. Each person being baptized this morning has come to understand God in light of His love and His justice. In light of their understanding of who God is and His love and His justice, they have also come to realize and have to come to realize who they are. They have asked the question, who am I? We know now somewhat about what God is, okay? But how about us? Who are we? Who are we? The Bible is very clear on who mankind is, who each and every person here this morning is. Ephesians 2.1, and you were, this is Paul speaking, he's talking about men and women who have already accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, so it's past tense, but he says, you were dead in trespasses and sin. Basically what Paul was telling, is, telling uh, those he was writing to is, before somebody comes to know Christ, before somebody uh, uh, accepts Jesus Christ as their Savior, they are dead spiritually. They were dead in their trespasses and sin. There was no spiritual light whatsoever in their life, none. Man, think about that. The word dead there is the same thing that uh, in the Greek that you would be talking about. Um, I'm going to pick on Miss June because I love her so much. If Miss June is dead, Miss June physically is what? Dead. I mean, she's laying on the ground. Somebody better help her. Okay? <laughs> she's dead. When we say we're spiritually dead, can anybody help themselves if they, spiritually if they are spiritually dead? No. No more than Miss June can help herself if she is dead. She needs help from where? The outside. That's what that word means. And Paul is very, very clear here that we are, as mankind, spiritually dead. There's not even, as I said, a little flicker of spiritual life within us. And because we are spiritually dead, 
because we are spiritually dead, we are not capable of finding or even looking for God. Think about that. In Ephesians, or excuse me, in Psalm 14, verses 2 through 3, it says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man. Who are the children of man? Everybody here. You're not a child of God, it just means that God created us, okay? Uh, to see if there are anyone who understands, who seek after God. They have all turned aside, God says. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And then we go up to Romans chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God because they are spiritually dead, period. We cannot help ourselves. And we have to understand that. We have to grasp that. We are not capable of finding or even looking for God in our spiritually dead state. In our spiritually dead condition, we cannot do anything to please God. We live in a constant disobedience against the sovereign God of the world, the sovereign creator. In other words, we have all sinned against this loving God. And the Bible is very clear about that also. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us being spiritually dead are sinners in God's eyes. So what is sin? We do need to just, to, to just make a quick definition. What is sin? Sin is doing, thinking, or feeling anything that God doesn't want us to do, think, or feel. Amen? Pretty much that covers how much of life. But there's another part that we must see. That's, that's the, the, the things that we... Uh, that's from one perspective, one side of the coin. The other side of the coin for sin, sin is also not doing, thinking, or feeling something that God wants us to do, feel, or think. Both sides of the coin. I can sin by doing something God doesn't want me to do, and I can sin by not doing something God wants me to do. And they're both sin, and they're both equal. A lot of times we think of all the things that, hey, man, I'm a pretty good person. I'm a moral person. I don't do this, and I don't do this, and I don't do this. And, you know, I'm pretty good in God's sight. But then God's going to look at you and say, okay, what are you doing that I have asked you to do? And a lot of people are going to sit back and go, hmm, hmm. And that's something that we need to Think about So we've all sinned against this loving God because we've all sinned. And this sin has earned us a wage. For the wages of sin is death, okay? Which in that idea, uh, uh, and we don't have time to completely go through it, means eternal separation from God. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, which we'll talk about here in a minute. But the idea here is the wages of sin is death. We have a, a, a sin debt that has to be paid. And, God can, and, and when we think about that, okay, this means that we are the object of God's wrath. Romans 1.18 For the wrath of God, you all need to grasp this. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What part of your sin doesn't deserve the wrath of God? None. All the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In our state of being spiritually dead, we are all sinners. We've all sinned against God. We, de we deserve His wrath. That's who we are. 
and we are destined to eternal punishment. Matthew 25, 46. And these things will go away, the end times, into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. These things are everybody who has to deal with their sin on their own without Jesus Christ. That's who we are. That's who we are. We know who God is. The Bible's very clear on who we are. And the world doesn't like us to think that we are like that. They want us to think that we are inherently good, that we inherently uh, have something worthwhile for God. And the Bible says, absolutely not in any way. Let me ask you all a question. How bad are you in God's eyes? As an unsaved person, now for those of us who are saved, look back in your time when you were unsaved. If you happen to be here this morning and you're not sure of your salvation, the question that you have that I'm asking is how bad are you? Remember what sin is. Doing, thinking, or feeling anything God doesn't want us to do, think, or feel. And also the reverse of that. So let's just start with the Ten Commandments. There's a whole bunch of more stuff in the Bible that God wants us to do and doesn't do, but we'll just, most of us here are familiar, or at least heard the term of Ten Commandments. I'm only going to give you uh, five of them. We're not going to go through them all. We don't have time tonight. So I'm just going to briefly say, uh, they're in Exodus 20, if you want to put it in your note sheet. Okay? You shouldn't misuse the Lord's name. Honor your father and mother. How many of us have already come up with a problem at some time in our life by not honoring our father and mother? That's breaking a commandment. Breaking a commandment is something God wants you to do. And if you have broken that commandment at some time, what does God look at you as? A sinner. You can't, okay? How about uh, do not steal? Do not give false witness? Do not covet? How many of us are condemned? Don't raise your hand, please. But how many of us are already condemned? Now, Let's make this a little more personal. We're going to give all of you a break. Okay? So let's say that you're 10 years old. We're going to give you the first 10 years of your life free. Okay? Starting at 10 years old, let's say that you only sinned against God by not doing something or sinned against God by not doing something He wants you to do one time a day since the time you were 10. So every year, how many sin indictments would you have against yourself in one year? 365. Now multiply that by how old you are from the time of 10. How many of you are up into the thousands of indictments? Hmm. How bad are you? Thousands of indictments. And so many people come to God and say, God is love. God will just kind of sweep all those under the rug because He's love, and He doesn't want to have to... He, he, he loves us so much that He's not going to punish us. The problem with that is we have thousands of indictments against us, and if God is just, can He just sweep them under the rug? No, because if He swept them under the rug, then He's not just, and if He's not just, then He's not God. So we see that the character of God actually constrains God. The character of God constraints. Now, there, this means that there is a tension in the being of God. He is an absolute just God, and He is an absolute God of love. He doesn't want to punish sin. He doesn't want to uh, have to uh, deal out His wrath. God is stuck because of His own character. And we need to understand that. 
And that's where this thing, where who we are and who God is, comes to a head. God has to be love, and God has to be just, and we are all sinners born that way. So let's think this through for a minute. Let's think this through for a minute. Every person, you and me, those who are getting baptized this morning, deserve death, eternal separation from God because of our sin indictments. No doubt about that. No matter how we look at it, we are in a really big hole. God must act justly and judge sin, otherwise God would not be God. He cannot just let sin indictments go because he is, uh, that would go against his justice, and he is also love, and he cannot not love. And he loves us so much that he doesn't want to carry out his justice against us. And this is where Jesus comes in. There's a tension. There's a tension with who God is. God sent his own son to earth to live as a human being. And being God himself, his life was sinless. Therefore, he didn't have any sin uh, indictments. He didn't have any sin debt of his own to pay And in His love, which is the love of God, He offered to stand in our place and take our sin debt upon Him. uh, Jesus Christ is the bridge between God's justice and God's love. He's the one that can bring us before God. And He did that through Jesus Christ. He took the wrath of God that we deserved when He died on the cross because of our sin and He paid off that that debt of sin which makes us what? Righteous before God. We no longer have a sin debt to worry about. God's justice was met through His Son taking our sins upon, uh, punishment upon Him. So, Faith in the works of Jesus dying for us is the only way that we can be made right with God. He is the only one who can bring salvation to our lives. And we need to understand that. There is no possible way for salvation from our sin indictments except through Jesus Christ. And the Bible is really clear. There is no other religious system. There is no other uh, secular uh, reasoning. There is no logic that can get us out of this position. It is only through Jesus Christ. And we see this. In John 14, 5 and 6, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to me, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one, who does that include? Every single person that has ever lived. No one comes to the Father. No one can stand before the Father as a righteous person unless they come through Jesus Christ. You cannot call yourself a Christian if you think there's another way to deal with your sin indictments. We also see this in 1 John 5, 11 and 12. And this is the testimony that God gives us eternal life, gave us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. They are not saved. They are still spiritually dead. We understand 
And going back to what I said earlier, that Jesus is sinless in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He stood in. He died for us. He took the wrath of God uh, off our shoulders and put it on him. And we, know, and we un- have to understand that there's some results of this. And as proof, as proof that God accepted his payment for our sins, we find in 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with Scriptures. His resurrection proves that God accepted what? His payment for our sins. Now, I might go a little bit long today. That shouldn't surprise any of you here, okay? But I do want you to understand this. We often gloss over that. We often don't allow that to really penetrate. We say, oh, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. But what's the problem with that? Do people rise from the dead? No. You want to know how I know that absolutely? Okay. Go back in your mind to the last time you were at a funeral. Okay? And you saw your loved one laying in the coffin. And you watched them close the coffin. And you watched them go out to the, bar- to the cemetery and bury that person. And there is grief and there is tears because we understand that person is what? Dead. Is there any concept in your mind that that person will ever come back to life? So, Three or four days later, you're watching NCIS on your TV, okay, kick back in your pajamas, okay, eating what you probably shouldn't be eating at that time of night, and a knock happens at the door, the doorbell rings, and you look at your husband, and the husband looks at the wife, which one is going to go get the door? It's nighttime. I don't want to. It's going to be the husband because the wife says, I am not going to the door looking like this. True? Uh, every woman in here has been, she understands that, right? You go to the door and you open the door and that loved one is standing there. How many of you would say, it is so good to see you, come on in. Or how many of you would slam the door shut, run and hide in a closet because that person should not be standing there? We would be freaked out. Our whole idea of what it means to die would just be obliterated. And when we read that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, we need to have that kind of reaction. That doesn't happen. But we know it did with Jesus Christ because God said, I accept his payment for your sin. And I'm going to raise him up from the dead to prove that I accept that. He raised him for the dead. We also know that in raising him from the dead, we also know that God justified us. And for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which we've already read, and are justified, are made right to God, legally right, it's a legal term, by his grace as a gift through what? The redemption that is in Jesus Christ Jesus. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who had faith in Jesus Christ. It is through Jesus Christ Death, burial, and resurrection that we find ourselves justified before God and without Jesus Christ, there is no way that can happen. You see, Jesus Christ becomes the bridge. The salvation that God offers through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ is a gift. 
It can't be earned by work or any activity that we do. And we know that from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved. You didn't deserve it. Nothing you could do to earn it. And that not of yourself, nothing you could do. It is a gift, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. And we understand what a gift is, don't we? Okay? Some of you guys here will remember we talked about this. So I'm going to use coal. All right? So coal grows up and becomes a millionaire. <laughs> that was his mom. All right? Coal grows up and becomes a millionaire. And he loves Pastor Mark to no end. All right? And because the ministry I've had in his life and all the times that I've picked on him for being short. Okay? And so he comes up to me when I'm still young enough to drive. And he says, here is a brand new F4 250 Lariat Edition Ford truck. Yes! Cole, I can't accept that. I really can't. Here, let me help pay for that truck. And I reach in my wallet and I pull out a $20 bill and I hand it to Cole. Is that an absolute insult to the idea of a gift? Because how far does 20 bucks go towards paying for an F-250 Lariat Edition Ford truck? It doesn't. It doesn't even, it's not even a penny. And I just insulted the gift that he tried to give me by trying to pay for it on my own. When we think that we can do something to earn our salvation, it is an insult to God because there is nothing we can do. It is, whatever we can do is so small, it does not make any difference. None. And that's where we stand. God has justified us and we cannot do any. We need Jesus Christ. And so all of this leads us to some questions. Questions that these Young men and women have all answered in their hearts and minds and have gone through all of this with us. Do you believe what God has revealed in the Bible? Do you believe Jesus was literally raised from the dead three days after He died? Do you believe your only hope of salvation from God's wrath that you deserve because of your sin is Jesus Christ? The youth being baptized this morning all come to, have come to that realization that they needed to be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. And they have come to a place where they have answered yes to all three of these questions. And this is why they are coming up before us and saying, this is what I know, this is what I've realized, and now I am going to be baptized to show that Jesus Christ saved me. They came to that realization that the question that we need to ask is how do they accept this gift? I mean, I was going to have to accept the gift from, from Cole. Let's say I did it right and I accepted it, and I'm out tooling around in my F4 250. Okay? My wife along my side. Okay? Going, don't scratch it. But the, how did they accept the gift? I would have to take the keys. I would have to do something to accept Cole's gift. He just, if he just gave it to me and laid the keys on the table and I never touched the keys, I never picked them up, I never started it, I never drove it, is the gift going to benefit me? Absolutely not. It's going to sit there and rust in my driveway. How did they accept the gift of salvation that Jesus Christ offers? The same way everyone has when they accepted God's gift, knowing there was no sin 
uh, knowing that there is no sin that you've ever committed that God cannot save you from. Nobody here has committed anything in their life that God cannot cover with the blood of Jesus Christ. There's no sin too big. You haven't lived a life too bad that God cannot change it. How do they do this? Romans 10, 9 and 10 tell us, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that means He is master of your life. It's not just saying, hey, Jesus is Lord. You are saying, I am confession. I am making a confessional statement about my heart. I confess that Jesus Christ is my master in every way. He controls every aspect of my life. And if He wants me to do something, I do it, not because I like it, not because I agree with it, not because it's always convenient, but because my Lord and Savior who saved me from the sin has asked me to do it. I confess that He is master of my life. If Jesus Christ is not the master of your life or is not growing to be the master of your life more and more and more, if you can just ignore the commandments that God has throughout the Bible, and we could list tons of them, if none of that is changing in your life, then God is not your master, God is not your Lord, and you are not saved. Bottom line. Doesn't happen. You cannot have assurance of your salvation if your life is not changing. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not only do you have to call him Lord and Master, but you have to believe with everything that you are, where nobody can ever touch it, that God raised him from the dead. And we, all, we operate like that on a normal basis, don't we? I know there are some here who have been, but let's say I'm assuming that most of you have not been to Alaska. Correct? Am I right? All right. My wife and I in the military, when we were in the military, when I was in the military, we spent over 11 years in Alaska. I know Alaska exists. I was there. How do you know Alaska exists? How do you know the maps are right? You've never been there. You've never felt the cold. You've never seen the snow. You've not seen moose and brown bear in your backyard. Okay? All you have to go on is what somebody else says. True? And you take it by faith that Alaska exists. And you know why I know you take it by faith? Because nobody will be able to convince you that it doesn't exist. If I come up to you and say, Alaska is false. All the maps are wrong. You've never been there. You've never experienced it. And everything that's published about Alaska is false. And you're going to look at me and say, I'm calling the doctors. Where's the white coat? Because I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Lassa exists and there's nothing that's going to change my mind. Do you believe that God was raised, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead in that same way, but on a scale that is a thousand times more important in your life? That's the bottom line. By faith, this gift offered by God is accepted. It is confessed in your heart that he is Lord and you believe that God raised him from the dead and that is how you accept the gift. That is how you accept the gift. And accepting this gift means things change in your life. You cannot accept this gift and have your life stay the same. You cannot accept this gift and live in sin and a rebellion and disobedience to God for your entire life. 
There is no accepting of that gift and not having a life change. Because this wonderful gift of confession always leads to repentance. Always. But declare first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and throughout all the regions of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. He says you must repent and then do what? Your life is changed because you are keeping uh, doing things that are in line with your repentance. Repenting means not that I just stay off to the side. Repentance means my life is in a, going in a completely different direction. I am 180 degrees different and walking in a, uh, away from everything that I was, becoming something new in Christ. My life is going to change. And it will always change if you are truly saved by Jesus Christ. There is no such thing as accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior and not having life change. It does not work. It is not biblical. And here's where we get to what we are here this morning for. You see... When we call Jesus Lord and when we believe He was raised from the dead, that always leads us to repentance and it always leads us to obedience. Always. Not perfect obedience because nobody here can live the life of Christ perfectly. But all of us will live it more obediently the more we mature in Christ. Therefore, go and make disciples all the nations doing what? What's the command? Baptizing. The first act of obedience from somebody who has accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior is obeying this command. Being baptized after confession of Jesus Christ as your Savior is not an option. It is an act of obedience. Period. If you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and you're not baptized, you are living in disobedience. Period. We need to understand that's what the Bible says. He, this, is, uh, this is Jesus Christ speaking. He says, baptizing them. Jesus Christ says, they get saved and they are then what? Baptized. These four young men and women have come to a place in their life where they say, Jesus is my Lord. And they're teenagers and we automatically know that's not perfectly because they're teens. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And I understand I need to obey Him in every area of my life, starting with baptism, and they are getting baptized today. And this baptism doesn't save them. They're already saved. This baptism is just them making a public profession to you that I have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, and He is my Lord and Savior, and I dedicate my life in obedience to Him. And we understand what it means to be identified like that. When I was in the military, I wore a uniform, didn't I? And if I was to wear a uniform up here uh, to preach or to walk in through the auditorium, what is everybody going to identify me as? A military member. We understand this in baseball, in softball. It would be really, really weird if one of our folks here uh, who plays baseball, uh, let's use Jacob for instance, okay? So Jacob is playing for the Swansea Tigers. He's going to high school at Swansea. Let's pretend that Gaston had a high school. It's our high school. 
But let's pretend they had their own separate high school. And so he wears his Swansea Tiger uniform over to the, Swan, uh, to the Gaston High School coach and says, I want to play on your team, but I want to wear this uniform. What would the Gaston coach say? You are nuts. You will wear our uniform. You will not pick and choose the uniform you will wear when you are on our team. You will wear the, t- the uniform that belongs to the team. The uniform that belongs to people who are saved by sa- faith in Jesus Christ is baptism. It is a public profession. And when in the first century, when they went down to the water, they didn't have a nice safe pool up here. All right? When they went down and they got in the first century, we have to understand this. They went down to the river, and guess what happened? They went down into the water, they were baptized in the water, and who was watching? Everybody, because that's where life happened in the first century. It was at the river or at the lake. Everybody was there. There were people washing clothes, there were people collecting water, there were people bathing. It all happened at the river. And when you walked down in front of all those people and you said, I'm getting baptized, and they would understand what that means, and they were baptized, what did everybody in the town know at that point in time? They identify as a Christ follower. Could that be dangerous for them in the first century? Absolutely. Because not everybody liked the Christ followers. But they put the uniform on. And that's what these four. And we have to understand, our world is getting more and more difficult to live in for Christ followers. And these four, right now, are getting ready to put on the uniform that is going to set them apart from everybody in their school who is not a Christ follower. It's going to set them apart from people they're going to go to a job for who are not Christ followers. And they're going to pay at some time a cost for that, sadly. But they've put the uniform on. And whatever God brings in my life, because I've offered my life to God because He saved me, I will take whatever Christ has. And you guys have made me so proud. And I'm excited. You can tell with my preaching today, right? I'm excited. I'm also promising you with every fiber of my body, I'm watching you. (laughs) I'm watching you. If I hear somewhere in Swansea and everything gets out in Swansea that you're not walking with Christ, that you're not walking with the Lord, who are you going to have lunch with? Cole just went, (sighs) (laughs) it's free lunch, Cole. All right? Guess who else watching them? Everybody here who witnesses this. Every teacher that they're going to see in school is witnessing this. Every man who is an adult male in this room who claims Christ as their Savior are watching you. Every woman who is a believer is watching you because we want you to grow up in your faith. And we don't want the world to steal you away. We don't want the world to distract you. And so when you do this, when you put this uniform on, I'm watching you for the rest of your life that God has me here. One of the things that we also like to do here is we like to have them give their testimony before they're saved, before they're not saved, before they're baptized. (laughs) That just went against everything that I taught. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So we have the privilege of watching a video of the testimony of each of these folks as they go get ready to be baptized.